wife is pregnant with the uh, first child. So, congratulations. Oh it's a very, God. very fertile crowd. I'm worried about Jewish continuity. <laughs> this audience alone is like 100 more years of Jews. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your hosts for the evening. First, she survived the domestic abuse of her Prozac adult cat, the Duchess of Instagram, the pride of Long Island, it's Stephanie Budnick! Next, all the way from the hills of Judea and Samaria, straight from the NRA to the JCC, it's Leah Leibovitz! And finally, it's the man who puts the ish in Jewish. The man who never has paid for a movie ticket in his life, Mark Oppenheimer! Hello, JCC Manhattan! (laughs) This is Unorthodox, the podcast of Tablet Magazine, live tonight on the Upper West Side. So thank you all for being here, Jews and Jewesses. Hebrews and Shebrews, righteous Gentiles. I know we have some of you here. That was the Jubador, Jim Nabel, with his band. Yes. So, um, listen, before we go any further, also, the, the fire marshal requires that we ask a very important question. Who's single here? Who's single? All right, so um, you guys need to find each other afterwards. There's going to be a book signing. Uh, Liel's and my and our guest's book. We have four books for sale afterwards. That's really just a pretext for the single people to kind of gather and, and meet. Um, so set your Tinders on stun and get to it. That's right. Um, our guests tonight include Jews of the Week, Jonathan Goldstein. He is, he is host of the podcast Heavyweight. And Jen Spira, writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Our Gentile of the Week is New York Times op-ed columnist Ross Douthat. And he is, he is, he is really goyish. I mean, we, when we go... When we go goy, we go full goy. We go full goy. When we go Gentile... No Unitarians. They say, we once bring you go Catholics. goy... That's right. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so we're very excited to get to our guests. Um, but, you know, first, like, Stephanie, how is the wedding prep going? Oh, it has actually been like one day since you asked, since we recorded this week's episode yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. So I, it is a time for an update. Yep. Um, it's good. The bridesmaids are going to be wearing lavender. I don't know if they know that yet. They might know now. Yeah, they know now. Get Wait, your ra- whole family has your, and all your bridesmaids? I have four-sixths. What's that? One-third? One-third? Two-thirds. Two-thirds. Sorry. A product of the public school system. Journalists. Don't tell Betsy, Betsy DeVos. DeVos. This one goes out for you. Yeah, I got, like, I, I'm like riding deep. I got high school friends here. You yeah, were, yeah. You were rolling very deep tonight. Literally everyone I know is yeah, here. That's like, awesome. I have Ben Cohen here in the flesh. <laughs> he asked not to be called out. I actually have my family here, his family here. So if we just like have a rabbi here, we could just get we this We could do it right with. now. Pretty quickly. Oh, Who's, yeah, we do. We have, rabbi Tolushkin. Oh, my God. Rabbi Tolushkin. Literally. Let's Do you have just... any look? One could argue that the hundred thousand dollars you would save by getting married right here—if you gave it to poor people—one could argue it to be sinful not to get married here tonight. But like, the live, you could save lives. <laughs> I know, but like, would I get a Vitamix? <laughs> I, I'd like to add that your pregnant sister is here she too, is. as well, right? Wow. Should, should we have the Cliff. birth here right now? Oh too? yeah. Do we have any obstetricians here? That would be funny. We do. <laughs> we can. <laughs> We could increase the size of your mishpoka by a husband and a nephew right, right here tonight. For free? <laughs> they didn't say for free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you at least take insurance? Actually, too soon. Um. Or too late, depending on how you think about it. <laughs> they actually want to have the baby tonight. Um, okay, what were we talking about? Oh, we were talking about, well... Oh, yeah, that's yeah. it for me. So the wedding's still on, is what you're... It's on... I mean, I'll have to check after right tonight, after this right, segment. I don't know. Bridesmaids are wearing lavender... You, and you're, you've registered for at least a Vitamix. Yes. So that's, that's the update so far. That's it. That's all I got. Got it. All right. Liel, you're uh, excited to go home and visit the, uh, the new embassy in Jerusalem? <laughs> <laughs> um, there are literally distilleries in Scotland that I've visited more times than, say, Yad Vashem. I think I've been to Jerusalem four times in my life. Liel says this, and I always think he's kidding, but it's he actually so swears to get there. he's there been like, to Jerusalem There's like a mountain. Four times. And there's traffic. There's like nothing and going there's on nothing on Friday to nights. Do. I mean, what, what, why would you go there? 
And so good luck to them. Well, so, so as I think I've told you guys, um, I'm taking my daughter Rebecca and my parents to Israel in March for 10 days, um, which is the first time that I'll have been, well, it'll be the second time ever, and the first time since my birthright trip in 2000. Um, and, like, are you, basically you're saying don't go, just saying birthright gets a laugh. It's so great that that's what, like... In this room? Yes. In this room, just saying birthright, is, that is the handshake. Ross, have you heard of birthright? Oh, that's... <laughs> so, oh, we'll get to you yet. Oh, we'll get to you yet. You know what's funny is Ross, who is a Catholic from, from Connecticut, it is true. I see the bumper stickers around my, my hometown. Birthright in Connecticut is the place where they do pregnancy counseling, i.e. adoption Look, counseling. Look, when you're in Israel, all you need to know is that your daughter needs to make out with an Israeli soldier. That's actually the requirement. She's 10. She's... I She'll think, be so cool when she gets back to school. I think your parents need to make out with Israeli soldiers as well. <laughs> All of the Oppenheimers yes. making out with Israeli soldiers. Like I just have that's to. That's like real. That's Zionism. <laughs> when American Oppenheimers are making out with Israeli whores and arrested by Israeli co- Jewish cops, right? That's that, Ben Gurion's vision. You, would, ben you, would you pay to go see that movie? I would pay to go see that movie. Um, while I'm here, does anyone have an apartment in Israel I can stay Speaking in for ten of days? Not paying. Like I could. Like, my job is beside the point if I can't go to Israel for free. Like, if you can't hook me up with apartments in five different cities in Israel, I quit. Like, it's, it's just not good for, for anything. Um, the, uh, the news of the Jews, of course, is what we always bring you every week. And so we thought we'd do something different, which is we thought that we would look ahead to the news of the Jews for 2017. So we're actually going to tell you what's going to happen in America for the next year. And you're going to hear it first, okay? So keep, just keep it, let's keep it in this room. Okay, let's just, just let's keep it right here. Um, so to start off, some, some very, very, very big news. On Wednesday, January 25th, 2017, Unorthodox will become a record-breaking podcast after 15 million fans pack its live show at the Manhattan JCC. In March, Jared Kushner will begin his assignment as President Trump's chief negotiator in the Middle East. Just as he's done in his previous capacity as the publisher of the New York Observer, Kushner will make the region available only on the internet and then walk away as soon as a cooler job comes along. (laughs) Seeking ways to monetize the presidency, President Donald Trump is going to open up the White House ballroom for bar mitzvah parties. And if you buy the gold package, the bar mitzvah boy gets to sit at the desk in the Oval Office and issue an executive order canceling the federal department of his choice. Oh, it's time for Purim, um, the holiday that tells the story of a young, beautiful Jewish woman with a creepy, slightly sexual relationship with a man old enough to be her father, whose chief aide hates the Jews. You know, like weird Bible stuff. Total crazy fiction. Just yeah. totally crazy fiction. What's happening in April, Liel? In April, Donald Trump stuns America by becoming only the second president to win a Pulitzer. He's awarded for his memoir, Dreams of My Daughter. (laughs) Loved it. Uh, In May, this is big news, Breitbart uh, announces its plans to syndicate unorthodox. Announcing the move, uh, Breitbart's editor, Alexander Marlowe, says, and I quote, with its obsession with Jews in the news and its many jokes about the Holocaust, Unorthodox is exactly the kind of podcast our readers will find interesting. <laughs> Look, we'll take all the listeners we can get. That's, well, absolutely. If Breitbart... Yeah, we're not, we're not above alt, alt-right neo-Nazis. That's right. At all. Also in May... Harry's um, needs them to shave their faces, too. I mean, they... Or they their need heads. them to shave those, heads. like, side <laughs> things. Those Hitler Youth haircuts are not going to cut themselves. They go through a lot of razors. Yeah. They do. Oh, also in May, baby boy Silverman is born. Woo! Yes. Let's get it. Uh, Unorthodox listeners both name the boy and then eat all the locks at the bris. In June, Israeli actress Gal Gadot will have her debut as Wonder Woman. The movie will be a hit everywhere in the world except for Israel, where you could see hot, kick-ass women with weapons just by, you know, taking the bus. (laughs) In July, Republicans celebrate their overall public broadcasting by presenting NPR's new lineup, including shows like... No Things Considered, the Take It Away from John Hockenberry, uh, and This American Carnage Life, or if you're into that kind of thing, Carnage Talk. In August, Mark turns 43. He shuts down his Friendster account and finally gets on MySpace. Totally. Uh, In August, Israel's efforts to send its very first shuttle to space will be thwarted after the Haredi astronaut will refuse to sit next to the women astronauts, <laughs> indefinitely delaying takeoff. 
The following month, it's back to school, and at American universities, they will catch up on the mood on college campuses by replacing the SAT with the ASAT, the anti-Semitic aptitude test. Uh, At Oberlin, you'll be able to get your BA in BDS. Also in September, an organization of pro-Trump ladies is confused when suddenly it's joined by thousands of reformed Jews after naming itself Women of the Wall. Literally... Literally, the entire audience for this joke is in this room. It's right tonight. here. You, that joke will never go over as well as with you people right here. Goldstein is a Jew from Canada, and those are the best Jews. Would you agree, Jonathan? All right. If we say so? Sure. Thank you. We have a clip from the show? Yeah, Jago, we, um, we have a clip from your show that okay. we're going to play for you. So, uh, can Bailey, we call can we... you Jago? Yeah, I don't know. You're supplying did. the whiskey. 30 years ago, when I set out on my pilgrimage from Montreal to 770 Eastern Parkway, my family was convinced that I'd lost my marbles. What are you, a religious nut now? My father had asked. Although we were Jewish, we weren't religious. We didn't keep the Sabbath, eat kosher, or do good works. But did we enjoy accusing people of anti-Semitism every chance we got? Absifakaktalutli. Are you the creator of Absifakaktalutli? I guess so. Because these people are going to take it into the Jewish sphere, like it's going to come back to you. That's, that's fine. You come up with stuff like that when you can't actually swear. Gimba doesn't let you swear? Um, I try to run a family-friendly huh. podcast. Now that you're a dad and all. Yeah. yeah. And, and a bearded individual. Yes. The beard is for the dadhood, right? It is, well, it's connected. I just had a, a son, so it's connected Round to applause, paternity please. leave. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> the most gratuitous applause I've ever received, but thank you. I'll take it. Um, because, I did, yeah, I just... I didn't do that much in order for this to happen, but... Um, didn't take that you, long. Now you actually have a dad beard. It's well, the it's new coming, dad bod. I'm going back to work on Monday, and it's coming off, but um, so far, it's just been like Robinson Crusoe in the apartment, so <laughs> it just feels like, why not? How has life been different with a beard? Because I think about I growing one... with a baby. Cool, I... No, no, let's... I could ask my cat four daughters. He understands perfectly I, yeah. well the daughter part. But a beard is really beyond but every time you can't have a beard. Well, no, every time I'm about to go here suit, my, so my wife and all four daughters hate the idea. Like, at day three of stubble, they really lay down the law. Yeah. But, but your wife and, and son were okay with it, and what does it do for you? How's life different as a bearded individual? I just end up eating alone, like facing a wall. <laughs> And yogurt is completely off the table. Um, it's disgusting. I mean, I, I like it, but it's just hard for everybody else around me. Um, but also, you live like three blocks from 770, so, right? So that is throw true. that hat on. And yeah, I, can, I could just be a part of it all. That's true. That's you don't want true. to blend into the crowd. So let, let me ask you a question. Heavyweight is amazing. You should all listen to it. It's this incredibly... Yeah. It's this incredibly intimate podcast uh, of, of conversations, figuring out, you know, relationships that are deeply, you know, that have much to do with, with you and your relationships. Is, is the podcast a sort of a, of a way for you to have conversations you would never have in, like, real non-microphone life? Yes, I think so. I think it's licensed to, like, because you go through life, or I do at least, um, just kind of embarrassing myself for no reason. But it turns, like, self-embarrassment into um, something more heroic. 
you know, it's like for the first time in my life, I'm humiliating myself, but for a purpose to entertain others and to be kind of like, um, to allow people to live vicariously through me and ask those kinds of questions that you, you normally can't. Here, here's the thing, and, and, and I mean this, uh, please believe me, as the highest possible form of compliment. Oh, boy. You're one awkward dude. Okay. Why choose this particular, I mean, this is like such an incredibly, is it because you felt you needed that outlet? Is it? Yeah, it's sort of like having a microphone is, is like a pass key. It allows you to sort of, I don't know, transgress in a way. Um, like there was one scene where I go back to talk to my first girlfriend who I dated like 30 years previously to find out what went wrong, like why she dumped me. Um, so uh, I asked my wife before I left like if she was okay with it, and I dropped the microphone and the tape recorder while I was talking to her, and that was the kind of thing that I thought would be just edited out, but my producer loved it so much because <laughs> it is so awkward and, um, and, and just kind of uh, it's the kind of thing that you don't normally hear and just makes people feel superior to me um, and allows me to like just be really vulnerable. But didn't, she, didn't your wife also say something like, oh, you're so nervous you dropped your mic or like commented on the actual... She, yeah, she did. She pointed out that I had dropped the microphone because I was like trying While to play very permission. casual. I was like, so yeah, so Galit, um, which was the name of my first girlfriend, is in town and she wants to get together with me. So yeah, I was thinking I would do that. I don't know. Like, yeah, is that cool? And like, but in the middle of asking her, I dropped, because my hands became so sweaty, I dropped the, the microphone and the recorder. Um, and my producer thought that was hilarious. So. Do you choose uh, traumas? Is it, how do you map it out? You're like, okay, here, here are the five things that have been the heaviest on my mind. I'm going to do those first. Yeah, kind of. Like, so for the first season, it was just like they'd just been stewing. Um, then the things that I think about at night and, and, and the stories that have you know, informed who I became, like you know, the story about the, this first girlfriend, and then there's a story about that I grew up with how my father has been alienated from his brother for like over 40 years. They haven't spoken. So those were like the things that I wanted to dive into. Well, the end of the episode with your father and his brother is so moving, and it basically all, all it required was you pushing them to get together. Well, basically. it was like they bonded over their... Um, their antipathy towards me, I think, was the thing. Because I kept on like pushing them together and being like, "How does it feel to be together? Isn't this nice?" And they were just like, "What's the matter with you?" Um, and so they were kind of dumping on me in this way that I think brought them closer together. And I was glad to to be a vehicle for that. That's interesting because I was going to ask if the show is a kind of therapy for you, but it actually sounds like it's therapy. You are the therapist. I'm doing good works, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Yeah, when, when we were in Toronto, we interviewed David Besmosgus, who said yeah. that his American-born wife was so happy in Canada. Like, he would have moved back to Brooklyn, but she was never leaving Canada. She was so happy to be out of the United States. You are a Montrealer originally. Yeah, yes. And you now live in Brooklyn. You, are, you have dual citizenship. Your wife's American. Yes. But you're, you, know, you were Canadian for a long time. Yes. And now you're here. What's, what's this like? I like it. I mean, I, I think we had talked initially about how... Um, if Trump were to be elected, uh, maybe we would replan things and hold on to, like, not get rid of all the... Because initially I felt like I'll leave Canada and I'll just set fire to all my Canadian money. It's not worth much anyway. And, like, to start fresh, you know? But um, but uh, now I'm kind of glad that we held on to the Canadian money. <laughs> so, so I have to ask, you grew up in Montreal and now you live in New York. Bagels. Where do you stand on the Montreal New York bagel thing? I do like. I don't know. I, I guess this is sacrilege, but I like New York bagels. I. That's <laughs> no, it's correct. It's factually correct, is what it is. I mean, I like Montreal bagels too. I just I feel like there's room for all the different bagels of the rainbow. Um, you, you know what I mean? You don't have to like choose one or the other. I guess. That's beautiful. That's yeah. inspiring. It oh, is. okay. So you had a baby in December. Yes. And so Mazel Tov on that. Thank you. Um, you just you're going back from paternity leave, in yeah, fact, right? Yeah. So, um, which is amazing. And and you know, I talk a lot about my kids, whom I adore. Um, and paternity leave is an amazing thing. And you're obviously very very bonded with this baby. The last show, the last episode of the heavyweight season, yeah. was. So I don't think it spoils a lot to say that you talk about how you once thought about becoming a very religious Jew as a yeah, teenager. Yeah. You were you were flirting with like deep 
from Ines. Yeah, so I and, went back to speak to my rabbi that I hadn't seen in like 30 years to figure out, again, what went wrong. And then you marry, you are now married to someone who, it turns out, has the most, um, when you go see her yeah. wife's family, it turns out that they are the, that they are the act goyim. Like they <laughs> are, so goyish. They are I, prairie I, home companion goyim. They are... Like gr- Grammy Hall. Grammy level. Hall yeah. goyim. Um, my mother actually once turned to me, we were in a post office, I'll never forget, she turned to me one day and she said, do you think there are people who are really happy? Like, they're just truly content and they wouldn't change a thing. Like, no neuroses, no anxieties. And I said, I don't know, I can't imagine anyone like that. And she said, I think Midwesterners who drive around in RVs, Gentile Midwesterners with RVs. Mythical creatures. Yeah. Who roamed the plains yeah. of Minnesota they roamed the in plains. slippers and... Yeah. Half man, half RV. Yeah. They're yeah. like centaurs. And I was sort of listening to this very beautiful description of your wife's family, which was so appealing to you because it was, it was so happy and there was so much love. Yeah. And they weren't, you know... It was Christmas morning. It was Everyone Christmas. Everyone was in their robes and slippers. I know, I know. Basically, you got you realized, your own slippers. Like, I've never, heard, maybe, a, yeah, I've yeah. never heard a better advertisement for sort of cultural Christianity than right. the last two minutes of episode eight of Heavyweight. All you need to be happy is surround yourself by a bunch of Minnesotans. Gentiles. And yeah. you, you're set in Christmas. And I thought, um, so then you go home, you know, right into the holiday season, like... Are you just all is, is Hanukkah just goodbye forever? Like are you all no. in for Christmas for is it are you no. just Lutheran now? No. In fact, actually, so we're going to we're gonna have a little conversion ceremony for our son. And her parents are so on board. They're like really curious about it and they wanted to know they they just want to know about Judaism. They're lovely. They're like just it's weird. You know, like just the idea of like it, like it's uncomplicated. She wants to get together with her family and they all like get along and you know. That is so not what I expected you to say. When will the yeah. baby appear? Like his voice appear on a podcast? How early? How young? I don't know. My producer said before I went off on paternity leave, she said, you know, you can probably get two episodes out of this. <laughs> And um, I knew she was right, but at the same time, I just felt like, ah, I just want to put a wall around that stuff. We weren't going to have the baby, but there were like only eight episodes in season (laughs) one. You have to monetize the kinder. You really do. They have to pay their way. They absolutely have to pay their way. Um, Before you go, tell us um, what's coming up. You're you're about to head back to make season two. Can you give us a little... a little sneak preview? I don't know. I don't know. I um, Do you need traumas? Should we punch you in the face or something? Should we No, I don't think so. Okay. It hasn't come to that yet, but um it it uh it it I haven't been out very much. This is like the first time that I've kind of been out in public um <laughs> in the past like couple months almost and uh Going back to work, I'm just, I don't know, I'm worried about, like, where the subjects are going to come from. We've opened up the transom to listeners to ask them, and uh, if you guys have any things that you feel like would suit the show, anything that you kind of want to redo on or regret that we can revisit and broadcast and, you know, allow the healing to begin, uh, (laughs) let me know, um, because it's going to be less about me and more about other people. Jonathan Goldstein, I, I dare say that in this room here, there are some people who have had some traumas that they... Some traumas. Some traumas that they could work through. We should get a mosh pit going yeah. in the front. I want a redo on like 1979 to 1995. <laughs> do, you know, do you know anyone who had any childhood trauma, Liel? <laughs> no. Jo- Jonathan Goldstein, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. This has been thank amazing. You. Thank, thank you for having me. Because if your dad doesn't have a Uh, Juba Dorians, would you sing in our next guest, please? Yeah, let's do it. One, two, three, four. Rasta that joined the New York Times <laughs> as an op-ed columnist. Previously, he was the senior editor at the Atlantic. religion, how we became a nation of heretics and two other books. <laughs> Ross Douthit, you and me. <laughs> Ross Douthit, everyone. Yes. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, sir. 
May we offer you some whiskey? Oh, I wish, but I can't. For reasons that will be explained on a future episode of Heavyweight, I guess. <laughs> Season two. Season two. Um, Ross Douthat is the youngest person in history to be named an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. Is that right, Ross? You love that, haven't, right? haven't I been there long enough and gotten bald enough Aren't you, and grown like my beard long enough young. that people right. can stop? Is anyone there younger than you, though? Nope. Bruni really plays young, yeah, right. I think. Bruni's a good, got a good 20 or 30 years. But you know that like, at 84, you'll be out. I like, do. The That's youngest right. ever yep. columnist. They'll, they'll trot me out. This well, intro, by all the way. the columnists will be cryogenically frozen <laughs> by then. So it actually, there'll be no new columnists. <laughs> Great. Um, his columns are reliably Catholic and unreliably conservative. He's a father of three children and two books, including bad, re- three books, actually. He's a father of three children and three books, including, three books? Three books. Three books. He's a half, father. Half a father of. However you def- I'm a co-author. So. But you're all father of your own kids, right? Yes. Okay, right. <laughs> He's a father of three children and three books, including Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics, which he'll sign for you after the show. Uh, before that, he wrote Grand New Party, which was a roadmap for a more populist Republican Party. Be careful what you wish for. Please welcome Gentile of the Week, Ross Douthat. <laughs> so I, I want to ask you about Grand New Party, which I absolutely loved. And, and th- I've been thinking about this book a lot, you know, since Trump. And it seemed to me like you got it like half super right and half completely catastrophically wrong. Right. Like, yes, yes. you got a populist, uh, you know, kind of like working man's Republican Party. But no, it wasn't the cheerful, sunny. Right. No, the, the funny thing is, so I co-wrote this book with Raihan Salam, a dear friend of mine who's now the executive editor at National Review. And I remember when we were sitting around working on the book and the, the book was written nine, ten years ago now, um, sort of in the death throes of the Bush administration, and the argument was basically, yeah, that the Republican Party has this increasingly working-class base, and it should move in a more populist direction, et cetera, et cetera. And people would say, when we were working on it, well, who are the Republican politicians who actually embody this idea? And we would sort of grope around and have trouble coming up with anyone. Um, But we would joke to each other, and I probably shouldn't admit this, but we would joke to each other. We were like, well, you know, a sort of populist, nationalist kind of conservatism. You know, if we could get Vladimir Putin over here. (laughs) And it was a joke, right? It was a huge joke. We were just kidding. Somewhere like, <laughs> somewhere Rod Serling is stepping out like, you know, yeah. and this is the twilight No, I, I mean, the, the, re- the reality is, and I, I think I wrote this during the campaign, that basically um, I look at a lot of Donald Trumpism as the kind of Star Trek mirror universe version of Grand New Party conservative populism, you know, where Spock has the goatee and... I, actually, that's the only part of the mirror universe I remember that Spock had the goatee, but it was bad, <laughs> right? The mirror universe was bad. Um, but yeah, that was sort of, you know, Donald Trump is God's um, punishment, I guess, for our presumption in imagining a more populous Republican Party. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly how to <laughs> interpret it theologically. I'm interpreting a lot of things as God's punishment no, these you days. So. You, uh, Catholic? Which is a very Jewish, yeah. Catholic, Jewish. <laughs> I'm trying to get some common well, ground um, here. You, know. you, you did not vote for Trump, I'm guessing. Um, I believe that New York Times columnists aren't supposed to issue endorsements, um, and I don't know if we're supposed to confess how we voted. Nobody um, listens but, to our podcast. So you right, can tell exactly. Us. Yeah. Now, I, are, I heard that 15 million people are going to be listening to this episode. Um, but I think from reading my columns, you could tell so, that I didn't. Okay, yet. but lots of, lots of people who are as vocally Christian as you did. I actually don't know what the Roman Catholic numbers were like, as best we know. The evangelical Christians went overwhelmingly yep. for him. What are, before I go to my question, what, do we have a sense of what people in your tradition in Roman Catholicism in America did in this I think, election? I think Catholics, um, in general, he did better among white Catholics than, um, than Romney did in 2012, slightly. And, I mean, you'd expect him to, given the breakdown in the Midwest. Right. Um, um, so... You know, one of the big questions that those of us who write about religion, um, which all four of us here do, in fact, um, have is how does a community of people who have, among other things, been on a particular side of culture wars where they're arguing we need more civility, we need people to stay married, divorce is bad, having five children by three wives is bad, Mm -hmm. um, chivalry is good, obscenity bad. I mean, how did they come out for Trump in such numbers? So, you know, one theory that I've had is I've always said – a lot of them don't actually believe this. It's a cultural style. You know, if you're a Republican in a small town in Alabama, you know that you're supposed to say you're an evangelical Christian, but it doesn't mean much beyond that. Um, 
I then get attacked for not taking them seriously. But what's your explanation for well, how— Well, I think your, your explanation is basically the primary season explanation, um, that if you go back and look at the breakdown in the primary campaign, and if you go and look at how white evangelicals in the South voted, white evangelicals who are actually— in church on Sunday, you know, sort of hardcore practitioners of evangelical Christianity were much more likely to vote for Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, Cruz if they were older, Rubio or if they were younger. And who Trump won was a kind of cultural Christian vote, the kind of people who, you know, are get really angry about the idea of a war on Christmas, but don't actually go to church on Christmas, let's say, hypothetically. Um, so that was sort of the primary season breakdown. So there, there was this phenomenon of sort of a kind of nationalist, culturally Christian, but not particularly devout vote that Trump ran up big margins among. And he, and he also did well among sort of straightforwardly secular Republicans, um, which is part of why he did so much better in the Northeast, um, well, in the general election in certain ways, but also in the primaries. He had huge margins, of course, in Northeastern states where there aren't very many evangelical Christians and where the Republican Party is generally pretty secular. So at the end of the primary season, you could say, okay, Trump basically exposed the fact that lots of Republican voters, while they have some identification with Christianity, aren't particularly pious, zealous, or socially conservative, except in a broad, I agree with Bill O'Reilly that things are going to hell kind of sense. Um, And then in the general election, I think, you know, the Basically, what happened was that, you know, we there's a mix of partisan conditioning, um, sort of lesser of two evil calculations, pro-life intensity, the fact that the, the Democratic Party had clearly and conspicuously moved to the left on social issues in many ways over the last four or eight years, which made it even harder, I think, for a lot of religious conservatives to contemplate a vote for Um, Hillary or even sitting on the sidelines, and then just this sort of sense of anxiety um, about sort of the future legal position of conservative Christianity in the U.S., the future legal position of, say, evangelical colleges, Mormon colleges that, uh, you know, don't want the Department of Education sort of regulating their bathrooms, for instance. Um, So all of that mixed together ended up delivering votes to Trump. So basically. all of that and God punishing you for writing that book. <laughs> Mostly God punishing me for writing the book, but the rest did matter. Co- so let me, co-writing co-writing let me, let me ask you a question. I, I, I want to move away from Cheeto Benito for a second. Um, you know, you're one of the points where I really enjoy um, you know, reading you, because I think we're very close on, is the fact you're not just like so many conservative writers kind of conservative on policy issues, but sort of socially liberal. You're you're socially conservative. So what I want to ask you uh, is, you look around, uh, and we're talking about golden showers. People are marching in the streets with pussy hats. Uh, There seems to be a kind of laxity in the culture to talk about things that even like five years ago would have been completely unthinkable. How does that make you feel? Um, Like we had a culture war and my side lost, basically, and lost on... On both sides of the of the aisle, I, I think that you know one of the best columns that was written about the um, the sort of cultural clash that Hillary and um, Trump represented was written by a, um, a Jewish writer, John Podoritz, um, making the case that Hillary and Trump represented basically opposite ends of the 1960s. Right? Hillary is, of course, the late 60s, sort of the boomers coming into their own political idealism, the commencement speech she gave at Wellesley, all of that. And Trump is the ring-a-ding-ding, rat pack. Uh, yeah, and he really is. I mean, if you listen to Trump, um, you know, there's a sort of Borscht Belt flavor to some of his weird humor at times. Like, there's a very late 50s, early right. 60s it's the last of the great Woodvillians. Right. Yeah. But the thing to remember is that, like, that kind of culture, that sort of early 60s, you know, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra culture was not itself a sort of culturally conservative culture. It was itself, it was sort of the first wave in certain, it was sort of the male wave of the sexual revolution, right? That was the golden age of Hugh Hefner, who was no cultural conservative. Um, He wasn't a sort of feminist liberal, but he was a you know, he was a guy who, but who in the paved middle, the way towards the age of, yeah, in golden the middle showers of Clinton, and pussy Between the Clinton years and the Trump years, we had someone who was, well, we had a couple presidents, both of them, in fact, like, by the time they got to the White House, these extraordinary family men, faithfully married, 
uh, kids whom they seemed close to and whom they loved. Why does Obama, I mean, you could, we could put George W. Bush in there too, but why is it that the cultural conservatives didn't say, we are living in the golden age of the presidency. Nobody saw it that way on the right-hand side of the culture wars. And I was, that always surprised me. Yeah, I me. mean, you, you had a few people. There, I mean, there were, there were a couple columns actually written in the last couple of weeks by conservatives saying roughly that, basically, thank you, Obama, for being a good male paternal role model yeah. and so on. Right, we're sorry about... Um, but no, I mean, I, I think in general, conservatives didn't give Obama enough credit for being that kind of role model and for, um, you know, some of the language that he would often get criticized from um, on the left, from people like my old colleague Tanahasi Coates, for instance, about sort of fatherhood in the black community and so on. I mean, I, I think there was clearly a sort of personal, socially conservative streak to Obama that um, probably people on the right will miss, are already missing in our, in our new era. So uh, a quick Google search reveals you to have some feminist detractors um, who have over the years accused you of you know, being out-and-out anti-woman. Why, you obviously don't think of yourself like that. Why do you think, what are they responding to? Probably the fact that um, I'm, well, we, we already had the birthright joke right, early, <laughs> earlier on, but probably the fact that I, I guess I'm the most prominent pro-life newspaper columnist. Uh, and I think that significant sections of the sexual revolution were a mistake. I, I think that, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's Do sort take of it that personally? much more complicated than I that. I mean, some of them, you know, like Amanda Marcotte, you know, and some of them, and Sadie Doyle, sometimes they can be extremely harsh. Do you care? Or do you, are you, are you beyond? Well, I mean, I care. You know, you, you obviously, you want people to like you, and you don't want people to think the worst of you, or imagine that, you know, you keep the women mm-hmm. in your lives chained somewhere on your vast compound or something. Um, but uh, if my wife is listening to this, I, <laughs> there are six inappropriate jokes I could make there, and I will choose none of them. Um, but yeah, you, you know, but, but you don't, you can't take it personally, right? I mean, I mean, first of all, by the standards of how sort of newspaper columnists, people who go on TV, people in our profession are written about, I think the things that some feminist bloggers say about me are pretty tame. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, if you are the drumroll youngest New York Times columnist <laughs> in the history of the New York Times and all of world history and so on, and you also happen to be a social conservative, you have to expect that some people are going to react fairly strongly to positions that you take. So I don't take it personally. I do try to, I mean, I think, um, I think feminist ideas are very interesting in many ways. And I think that, I think in certain odd ways, that sounded horribly condescending. (laughs) But fortunately, this isn't going out to an audience of 15 million people, so I have nothing to worry about. Um, Reading you, it seems like, and it's completely understandable, right? You were were the conservative at Harvard. Uh, You're the conservative at the New York Times. you've, You've had this career of being the conservative in a place uh, that is hostile to your ideas. And believe me, I I know what that feels like because I I do this every week. It's it's white male oppression. But that's right. We have websites now, though. But my question is, reading you, it almost seems like you go out of your way to construct arguments and tone in this way that does whatever it can to, how would I put this mildly, invite as many people as possible into the conversation, which in a way, I guess, is, is what a good columnist does. But, like, is right, there but like that's a, all a trick, But right? is there like an angry person inside of you being like, I just want to tell you assholes what I really fucking think? Will you I, ever I can't, like, go I can't mad? Comment. I can't comment on that. <laughs> well, uh, you're guess, saying, does he need an anger translator? I, I, guess I, would, I guess I'd put it this way. I think that it's a great gift as a writer um, to be given the opportunity to constantly write for people who disagree with you and some of whom think you're basically the Antichrist because it forces you into, yeah, into sort of perpetual engagement. And, of course, there are times when I just want to haul off and write the kind of column that I would probably write if I had a career exclusively within the conservative media. But then again, at the same time, I mean, you know, we started this with jokes about Donald Trump and so on. But in the era of Donald Trump, I don't think it would be really appropriate. I mean, let's put it this way. American conservatism's got a lot of problems right now. I've noticed. And the scale, I mean, we do have intense amounts of power, too. So it's sort of a trade-off. But um, 
But given the scale of those problems, I don't think this is exactly the right time for me to be hauling off and screaming at liberals every week. Um, and then when I do, you know, I mean, people let me know about it, right? I mean, I felt like the pattern in this campaign season was that I would write four or five columns in a row being like, Donald Trump is terrible. I don't understand why these gutless Republicans aren't figuring out a way to stop him. This is dreadful. It's a nightmare. They're all letting me down. And then I'd write one column that was like, but by the way, liberalism's got a few problems too. And everyone would be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're an enabler for the terrible thing that is Donald Trump. Like I wrote this column. He chains his wife up in the basement. Who chains, I heard right. that on Well, podcast. I mean, you know. But I, I wrote this column that maybe some of you may have read. I think it was called Liberalism's Samantha B. Problem, right? And I thought this was a very reasonable column. The argument was basically just that, um, you know, because of the cultural ascendance of, of liberalism and sort of this general sort of tilt towards the left that increased in the, in the later Obama years, that liberalism was building a kind of cultural echo chamber that people who weren't that ideological were likely to react against, maybe by casting some rebellious votes for somebody who seemed to be willing to charge through the wall like the Kool-Aid man and break things up. Um, and that was one of those columns that had, yeah, it had, I think, the probably because disagreed the internet you. disagreed with me. Um, they thought that uh, Samantha B disagreed with me. Samantha B gave some quote that was like, you know, I think it's great to know that we're the real problem instead of like racism. Um, and I wasn't saying that racism <laughs> Ross wasn't. Ross likes racism. Ross Douthat likes racism. And, of course, because some, even though I had mentioned six male, you know, comedians slash liberals in the, in the actual text of the column, Samantha B was in the title, and so I was opposed to female comedians, and, and so I, you know, there That's was because a, you hate women. We've it was because I hated women. There, there was a long list of criticisms. But this is awkward you know, because our next guest is a female comedian. Is a female comedian? You, well, in fact, I, chose I, to have daughters because you hate women. I, well... I, I, my older daughter, who is only six, has not yet grasped that argument, but she will in a year or Take two. Take it from me. Yeah. Ooh, that's going to be a but tough I, but, adolescence. Yeah. For, oh, she's our, I mean, she, you know. She's going to be like, Dad, I've been on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, Don't grab me. You know, we all, I've, I've, Stephanie, we all, we all are going to face that someday, those of us who write for a living. So, um, as you know, because you've listened to all 79 episodes of our podcast, um, we always give the Gentile of the Week a chance to ask us a question because we are a certified panel of Jewish experts. Um, do you have any questions for us about, about Judaism in the world today? My fascinations as, you know, as someone who is actually a sort of, you know, demography and fertility obsessed social conservative is <laughs> are, so are the Orthodox just going to inherit Judaism in, in 50 or 60 or 70 years? What's, what's the demographic future of liberal Judaism? I think we should each take our turn answering that. Liel, what do you say? I'm going to work down. No, I want to go first. Okay, Stephanie, what do you say? I think if you look at birth rate, yes, orthodoxy like will win out. There, there's just a lot more babies being had among Haredi communities. I think that's just a reality. Yeah, they're going to take over. Okay. <laughs> it's been real, That guys. was the answer I was yeah. looking say, for. Say it's like so. it's a bad thing. I'm, no, I'm fine with it. Lyle? Why do you hate orthodox Jews? <laughs> no, Mark Why hates do you hate orthodox women? Jews. Mark does. That's Liel true. hates women. Mark hates religious right. Jews. I love everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and they love you. They turn out for you. So, Yes. <laughs> LL? Uh, yeah. First of all, it's so amazing to me that, you know, that, that, you know, a Catholic would share this, what I would conceive of as this, like, quintessential Jewish obsession with, like, continuity of our people. You guys could always, you know... Go to go to like Latin America and get like fifty million converts. You know, we're, we don't well. I just that. came back from watching Scorsese's Silence, so I, you know that option. This is Liel's favorite. A little, a little yeah. less. This is Liel's favorite movie of the past eight hundred years. By yeah, way. he won't the, stop talking the about favorite, Silence. My inner Jesuit uh, was delighted uh, by watching them watching torture. Uh, but but so, the, 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 so to Ross's question, the answer that I really want to give is that. Uh, and this is, you know, where we where we have our, our little disagreements on the show, uh, is that I think that what you're going to see is less a question of of demography and more a question of ideology. I think that so much of of Judaism's problem right now isn't in continuity, as in the sort of straightforward peoplehood, but rather in the ability to define what it means when it talks about itself. You know, Catholics, it's very clear. You know, do you adhere to this faith? Do you go? 
to it's the a, church. It's a little less clear these days, but well, but, but it, yes, in theory. Imagine what it is right. for us. Like, I like Seinfeld. The you know, my mother's again. vagina is Jewish, therefore I'm in this club I can't really get out of. Um, I think there will be this moment of reckoning in which you actually have to make a choice, uh, whether you believe in this Komavudi uh, religion that we have uh, and kind of double down on it. Not to be, in other words, Jewish, but rather a Jew. A Jew. Um, a simple Jew. I'm going to answer you with a... I, I can't do better than these two. So I, well, I like both those. Yeah. You know, as a reactionary, the future they're both describing no. seems, seems, seems appealing. Then so. There'll be lots we of women chained in basements in B'nai Brock for... Uh, um, so. Where I'll visit in March and see for myself. Have it. Um, Does anyone have a place you could stay? Yeah, but if I could stay there and watch a free movie, I'll I will, I'll Chained shut up or about unchained. it. Um, actually, I can't I can't improve on that. I mean, I think I actually think that 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 um, I'll just leave you with this: that I think the question really will be um, not are there a lot of people who are Jewish, but are there a lot of Jews? That's how I think about it. Yep. Being being Jewish is is easy. Um, so, but but what it means to be a Jew? That's where I'm. Probably all three of us would. We disagree. So um, you have 10 seconds to answer this last question. Why do so many conservative Christians like fantasy literature like Lord of the Rings? Isn't the, isn't the real question why so many liberals like fantasy literature that's set in ancient societies with longstanding traditions and people wielding swords and, you know, all kinds of things? I think it's obvious why it's conservatives obvious. like fantasy. I think the mystery is why so many people who think of themselves as progressive actually like to cosplay as, you know, Game of Thrones characters. <laughs> Gentile of the Week, Ross Douthat. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot, man. It's a bad religion to be in love with someone who can never love you. Mom, my name is Jen. I'm a staff writer on a late show with that Stephen Colbert. And formerly a senior writer for The Onion, where I made videos too. Beyond The Onion, my humor writing has appeared in The New Yorker, McSweeney's The Daily Beast, and elsewhere. I even got my writing in The Wall Street Journal. I'm a rhymedian, a cross between a writer and a comedian. Hey, 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 I'm a rhymedian. This is from her website, all this material right here. As a comic, I've been featured on lots of different shows like the Laugh Factory in Chicago. I've performed improv on teams and I have an MFA. Across between a writer and a comedian. Hey, I'm a rhymedian. I think we all know the words. Let's sing it together. I'm a rhymedian. Hey, hey, mama, I'm a rhymedian. Across between a writer and a comedian. Jen Spira is an alumna of Barnard College. She's a staff writer on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. She's written for The Onion, The New Yorker, McSweeney's, and tonight she's writing right here poetry impromptu for us on Unorthodox. I just mean you're going to be a great guest. Um, welcome, you. Jen Spira. Thank you. Yeah, I'm second so Jew of the week. Here. Oh yeah. my God. Thank you. I have to say, I'm like happy to have another lady up here. It's been like a real dude fest tonight. So true. So thank you for being here. Totally. I, mean, we, I don't care what you say. We hate oh, women, but, but Stephanie insisted, so we said, fine, you know. I, I was like, to- the optics are bad for I yes, know, man. yeah. So we talked to your friends, and we know that you're like, you have a big career. Like, you're writing for, for The Late Show, and you made crazy coin at The Onion. And, um, you know, we know that one might think you're principally after fame, but actually, um, are you really more after money? 
God. I am so embarrassed. So in the pre-interview, I did say that I am really motivated by money. I love money. But it really hasn't, that hasn't been, that hasn't, even though I said that, it's not really, I mean, all the things, all the jobs that I've done aren't, I mean, this, the, the TV job is awesome money, but the onion was definitely like, you know, no money. And any creative, I mean, I really don't, anything that I do, it's, it's not, to get dollars because I see now that there are these, having been in LA for a little bit, there are other jobs and there are other tracks that you could take other than like late night and where that leads you that's like more dependably dollary. But um, <laughs> so yeah, so but I money. do love my, it's true. And Which I am why motivated. you got an MFA. Oh, <laughs> I know, oh my God. Greedy bastards, I'm so bitter right? about that, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm actually, I am doing a panel. I, I did this MFA thing at Northwestern and I'm doing a panel there like later in the spring. And the thing is, I really don't think you should do an MFA. And I, I don't think if you can avoid it, then you probably should in terms of money. It's all about money. You know we're actually not paying you tonight, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> Oh, I have to ask, did you go to the Women's March last weekend? Yes, As I did. As a woman. Yes, well, I, I feel guilty because I didn't, I don't think I put in enough time there. I, with some Your friends. Your hat had only one ear. Oh, God. I, I mean, I wish I even had one ear. I didn't even get one of those little guys. But um, is anyone wearing that hat here tonight? No. Um, <laughs> but, but. Yay, movement. <laughs> I know, seriously. Um, but I, I did go, I tried to go to Trump Tower for a little bit, didn't last too long, but when I went, um, we, I, w- I was there with friends, and I, when, I just, some, two guys, and they were, they sort of, like, looked kind of bro and they were, um, may- maybe they were, like, you know, just, like, in their 30s, and as they were walking past me, they said, man, there are a lot of ugly girls here. And they said it really loud. They said it loud enough where, like, they definitely wanted people to hear. And they were both laughing. And, like, the, the friends that I were with, we were, like, too shocked to say anything. And then immediately one was like, I wish I had said, you know, like, screw you or something. But, yeah, it was, it was sad. Is, it, is, is the underlying statement there that they, like, went to the march looking for hot chicks? Like, <laughs> were they looking for girls? Right. They think that was a good place to pick up women. <laughs> I know. Yeah. They probably didn't. This was around Fifth Avenue. And they were probably going to, like, Tommy Bahamas or something. Do, do yeah, you they also were on f- sale. Yeah. Do you also really find great if they went to pick women? And are you yeah. more offended as a woman or as a comedy writer? Like, do you sort of want to turn around to them and be like, you know, let me write some lines for you? Like, that's seriously. Not- yeah, seeing them like they were really cracking up in this very sort of like you know they were really like tickled and it was no as a woman it was it was more of a bummer as a woman than as a comedy writer because everybody makes bad jokes. Me too. So, do you feel like in, you know you've got four years looking at jokes about? Donald Trump, which I understand is, is a gift, but also a problem. Yeah. Um, but what about like, what about elsewhere in Washington? Like, you know, cabinet members. I mean, is is, is Secretary of State Tillerson going to be good for, you know, Betsy DeVos? Are you working on your your deep, deep? Mnuchin. Yeah, Mnuchin. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, we absolutely are. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's absolutely like in terms of what we're doing on the show, it's just a case by case what is really grabbing people and what the writers are sort of passionate about and, you know, can come up with like a focused, you know, delicious pitch on. And I mean... It's that we absolutely. I mean, it is a little sort of mini break from Trump to just talk about DeVos or Tillerson or just someone else. So that is a little breath of fresh air because it was Trump for so long, and we really thought that, you know, we were so the writers were so excited to stop talking about Trump, and we thought that you know that was going to happen. And so um, it's a little mini break. It's just like a, any kind of different flavor, even if it's also repulsive, is still a is break. one of them in particular just calling out. Is do is there one of them where you look like I've I'm going to have jokes about you? <laughs> oh my. You know, I mean, it's it's Linda McMahon. I mean, as head of the Small Business Administration. I mean, but that's the thing. It's this like fire hose situation. You know, there's just there's just way too much, and it's just like this shock and awe thing. So, I mean, my favorite. No, I mean, DeVos is really good, and I mean, I'm fascinated by her. I, I, it's that's the thing. It's an embarrassment of riches. Yeah, I mean, he cast them that way, didn't he? I mean, their looks, even their names, like Ryan Spriebus sounds like a Volkswagen <laughs> breaking down. I mean, it's, it's, the whole thing is perfect. I know, I know, yeah. Yeah, there was a great, this wasn't a, this wasn't mine, but at The Onion, there was a great headline about Rance, Ra, Ryan Spriebus that's like, you say his name three times and he like hurdles <laughs> back to the realm from whence he came or something. <laughs> the realm being Minnesota, so, but yes. So yeah. speaking of The Onion, you went from writing... The old definition of fake news, funny fake news, right? To writing 
for a late night show about news that's basically as bad as The Onion. Like, as, as not bad writing, like as it, all Onion headlines sound real right now. Right. So what do you do when the news sounds like an Onion headline? I think that like anyone who works in comedy, you try to avoid the first take, you know, like the first thought. You want to get from, you don't want to go for A for the joke. You want to go to C, so not the first thing that people are thinking of, which might be a little bit more basic or familiar. But the first, whenever like the material is so outlandish and it already seems like a joke, I mean, your first reaction is, you know, you can't write this. And like, you know, it, it, is, it is hard to kind of make jokes about things that are outrageous. But then you, once you dig in, then they always come and you can so you've written a lot of shouts and murmurs they're very funny you should all read them which is your favorite and will you tell us what happens in it are you talking about mine oh yeah yours oh my god which is my favorite okay well that is thank you so much for asking me that um for our listeners who are not on the upper west side of manhattan those are columns in the new yorker magazine right exactly well i i would have to say that my favorite that i've done I've only done five, um, is uh, uh, the first one that I did, which was a parody of um, the, a New York Times column called Sunday Routine, which I think... <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's um, it's just like they, you know, they interview some, like, you know, notable person about how they spend their Sunday. And, uh, you know, it, I love, I mean, I love reading it. And it's very, it's, it's just, so it's basically my thing was a sort of like parody of like, really like, I guess, yuppie. People don't really say yuppie anymore. I don't know what the word is. But actually, it's my favorite also because there's an illustration and it's this. It, it's an illustration of a woman in a fluorescent yellow leotard and she's doing a backbend over this little legless dog that I invented for the thing called Percival. And um, and I that's it's like me. I do yoga and I would love to have a dog like that named Percival. So I was happy to see that illustration. And you can. You're right. You could have that dog. You're right. So, je- yeah. Speak, speaking of, 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 of career moves, um, so you adi- you're at The Onion. Yeah. You auditioned for Colbert. Yeah. This is like the biggest moment in every comedy writer's life. How, how, is, how is this audition going? Oh, my God. Well. Are you in person? Are you on the yes. phone? It would have been. I was in Chicago. It would have been in person if I was in New York. But Stephen and the producers were in New York. So we just did it over Skype. And it happened. It, there was, it was just this one interview over Skype with Stephen. And hold, hold on. Hold yeah. on. So you know that at any point it'd be like, do, 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 do. And you will press a button, and fucking Stephen Colbert. Oh my god! So I'm wearing a diaper. Will be on the other end. Yeah, I mean, it was like it, you're so you're. It's because because the thing is, I was trying to remind myself, like, to get to this stage, they only want to check out that I'm normal, that I'm nice, that I, you know, that like something isn't weird. So I was just, you know, I was trying to like, don't like overplay this, you know. I mean, just like be cool. But I can't believe that I didn't prepare. I was trying to think of all these different things that he could ask to have some sort of ideas. But the first thing that he asked was something that I hadn't considered at all, which is insane, which is like, what are your comedic influences? And, and I was like... I'm sorry, I, what were you preparing on? What seriously? are your favorite people encyclicals? I, I mean, have like, no... I know. So I, I think I was going too deep, and I... Whatever. I, I was so embarrassed because the only things I could think of... Because what you normally say is like, I mean, you know, letter... People. I mean, like, f- fancy comedic people. And I said, Uncle Buck and Death Becomes Her. <laughs> And, and I was like, those are the only things I could think of. And it's true that they are influences, but... Like third-tier John Candy movie. I know. I, I really... I know. I was like, that's bad. Um, not even The Great Outdoors. You went straight. No, but that's... Eh. So when did you first realize you were funny? I mean, Hard-hitting question from Stephanie Parker. <laughs> no, Parker. I'm saying, like, was there a time where you were like, people are laughing at me and not... Like, people are laughing with, with me. You. And I uh, like this feeling. Yeah. I mean... You know, it's funny because, like, I think of, like, you know, with a, when a lot of comedians think, like, how they became funny, there's some problem. They they had some sort of, like, horrible issue to deal with, you know, uh, in, when they were growing up. And, I mean, I think that, I don't know, like, I had scoliosis and I had to wear a back brace in high school. And that, like, the thing is, I... Like Deanie. Like Deanie. I know. And I read Deanie before, way before I had the brace. And I remember thinking I would kill myself if I had to be like a loser like Deanie. And then you became Deanie. And then I became Deanie. Yeah. I mean, I, I think honestly just like making sarcastic comments and trying to distinguish myself in some way. The back brace wasn't distinguishing enough? I, seriously, it really was. No, I think the back Mark, brace kind of helped. Mark, when did helped. you first realize you were funny? <laughs> well, I'm asking. No. I'm oh. asking because I know Mark wants to be funny. And so I'm hoping that we can <laughs> maybe impart some like some wisdom here. I just want money. 
I just want, it's not about the funny at all. <laughs> Jen Spire, thank you for being our second Jew of the week. Yes. Totally, thank you. L.A. Jews eating Chinese food by the moonlight. Grandpa's got his fiddle out to play. Never played it very good, but it's just right. Reminds him of his good old glory days. And the doorbell rings and in comes great Aunt Evelyn and Diane. Evelyn's from the horse and buggy days. Diane came to Hollywood to make it in the more Jews who are living in L.A. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and 26-year-old Shira Talushkin. Rabbinic supervision is by Rabbi Joy Levitt of the JCC Manhattan. Kosher slaughtering is by Betsy DeVos, if she can spell it. On Twitter, we're at Tablet Mag. Stephanie is on this thing called Instagram. She's at S. Butnick. Our music is by Golem, but tonight it's by the Jubador, Jim Nabel, and his band, the Jubadorians. Uh, Thanks to the JCC Manhattan for their fabulous hosting, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. Thank you. Bell rings and in comes Shirley and Harry. Used to own a deli on the Lower East Side. Had to shut it down when New York started getting scary. Two more Jews who are coming out west to hide. L.A. Jews eating Chinese food and it's late night All together round the table sing Remember how it used to be in the limelight Now they're here and it don't mean a thing Oh, but L.A. Jews eating Chinese food they're not suffering They're not suffering Thank you very much